Hello, mainstreamers and cinephiles and everybody in between. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. And Operation Silver Screen is a go. Hello and welcome to Operation Silver Screen. This cinema-related operation has been created to clear our desks from stacks of open cases. What are these cases? Well, even being the film lovers that we are, Caitlin and I have a huge backlog of must-see films that we still need to experience. So each week, we'll tackle a film that either one of us or both of us still need to see. We will then provide a debrief on our week's mission, giving our outlook on the film's popularity and significance, as well providing our opinion on whether or not it's worth seeing and other fun insight. And Caitlin, what did we watch this week? So before we get into that, have you seen this week's issue of the New York Herald Tribune? Apparently, there's a man on the loose and said he steals cars and is wanted for shooting a cop. Word is he's holed up in a Paris apartment with this American girl, too. Oh, really? I have not heard. Yeah, but he seems quite a character, too. This guy's over here thinking he's Humphrey Bogart or something. But anyways, back to the podcast. So this week we watched Breathless, or what the French title is, is About de Souffle. It's the film that defined the French New Wave and is the first feature film from Jean-Luc Godard released in 1960. So this is a film that, that really just set forth what the French New Wave is. It really solidified this new movement. But before we kind of get into what the French New Wave is, I do kind of want to talk a little bit about your experience with uh, Jean-Luc Godard as a director, Bryant, because I know this is one, like last week, it's one that I've seen that you haven't. Yes, a back-to-back. I guess this is going to become a regular thing. <laughs> I'm sorry that your film education is lacking, Bryant. <laughs> I'm, I'm, still, I'm still above you on the scoreboard here. <laughs> I know, you are. <laughs> Miss hasn't seen Godfather. <laughs> so my experience with Jean-Luc Godard, I found him out when... I watched a film essay on the French New Wave, got really interested in it. So I heard that Jean-Luc Godard was one of the, you know, he he was top on the totem pole of French New Wave. So I checked out a couple of his films. The first one I watched was Weekend, one of his more popular movies. Gotta be honest, I didn't understand anything about it. Nothing. It apparently had to do with some issues going on in the French society during the time so that's why I just missed out on a large portion of it but it still grabbed my attention because it was very different there were a lot of there's just a lot of unconventional filming that had taken place especially for his time that even though I wasn't fully understanding what was going on I wasn't tracking the story I was still very interested in it as well so the other film that I saw of his was Contempt which I really liked I liked the beginning I liked the color throughout the film uh, it has one of my favorite tracking shots in it and where they're just moving around this house. And again, it's, it's random. It's There's no structure really to it, but it's still very intriguing to watch. And honestly, again, I'm not completely... I was following Contempt while I was watching it, but now thinking back to it, I can't remember what happened. But I still like the look of it and I just like the way that it was filmed. I've seen some... Other new wave films as well. You actually have seen another um, John Luke though, unless you lied to me. I recommended it oh, to you. Another movie that I've seen from John Luke Godard that I forgot was his that I really enjoyed. It's probably my favorite out of all of them is Band of Outsiders. I would actually have to rewatch Contempt to see which one I favor more, but Band of Outsiders is another one that. I enjoy a lot in the dialogue, especially in that one. And there's just a very, I think. With each of his films, there's at least a scene that is very interesting, very artistic, innovative, 
and very unique, and I love that. I have seen some other French New Wave films, but Caitlin, what's your experience with Jean-Luc Godard? Yeah, so Breathless was actually the first Godard film that I really watched, and I'm not sure I fully had an education on the French New Wave when I watched it, but it was something different, and the more I learned about the French New Wave, the more I wanted to delve into his filmography. So I've seen it quite a few now. I've seen the ones that you've mentioned. I've seen Masculine Feminine. I've seen Viversevi, Pierre Le Faux, Tout va bien, Alpha Bill. So I, I've seen quite a few of his films now, and I, I got a good idea of who he is as a director. There's still other directors that I want to explore a bit more in the French New Wave. He does make a lot of political films now, too. I haven't seen Weekend, but he does tend to make political films and that sounds like that might be one of them i'm not quite sure but i really i really enjoy godard he's one of my fave directors i would say and i don't necessarily love all the films that he does he has a very extensive filmography but when he creates a film that is just good it, it's it's more than good it, it's amazing i think just everything that he does as a director and his style is is just it's different it's very different. It's very thought out. And I, I just really enjoy him. But so this will actually be the first French New Wave film that we tackle here on the podcast. I'm sure it won't be the last. I know we have some other ones that we do have set to maybe tackle in the future from other directors. But this one being the first one from Godard and being an influential one in the French New Wave, I thought it was important that we tackle this one. And we've talked before about this being an influence on other films. Um, We've talked about Vivercevis briefly in our Worst Person in the World podcast and how the French New Wave kind of influences those films, the Oslo trilogy, and how they are designed. But the French New Wave, or the Nouvelle Vague, is a film movement that happened in France in the 1950s. After World War II, France was in debt, which led to them signing an agreement with America called the Blum-Burns Agreement. And this was an agreement between James F. Burns, who was the American Secretary of State at the time, and the French representative Leon Blum. And this would open a line of credit to France between France and America in exchange for opening France's markets to American products. And so one of those products, of course, was American films. So when it came to the French film industry, there often wasn't a lot of money to put into the industry at the time. And when it was, you saw a lot of this studio set up in the film industry at the time. And of course, the Hollywood studio was being a big influence. So largely, the French New Wave was a series of directors who were really influenced by the Hollywood industry. And it was very much a rejection of the Hollywood film and a rejection of the studio system. And that's what brought about these films in the French New Wave. So, so what does this kind of mean? It means that you had films that were often low budget. They often had to use creative camera and filmmaking techniques as a result of that. And you had narratives that felt the opposite of what studios were doing at that time. It was a departure from the strong plot-driven narrative and focused a lot on more complex ideas. You also had a handful of films that were really from the hands of the directors itself. This is kind of where the directors had full creative control, something that would grow into what you call auteur theory in film studies. And that's the idea of the director is the author of the film. And so Breathless really was not the first French New Wave film, but it certainly was one of the biggest and most influential. The three that are often cited as being the most influential in the New Wave are Breathless, along with Renée's Hiroshima Mon Amour and Truffaut's The 400 Blows. So before we get into it, I do want to mention that the first part of our debrief will be spoiler-free as we talk about our overall thoughts on the film. 
but as we move into the classified part of this mission, there will be some spoilers on the story. We'll be sure to give you a warning when we get to that part, so let's go ahead and get into why this film was chosen to watch this week and a little bit of the critical reception to this film. Yeah, so this movie was actually well-received right when it was released, and I was a bit surprised by that in that I thought this would be one of those films that people didn't catch on to at first and see what it was doing and therefore were opposed to it and it later becomes a cult classic. But no, people love this movie right from the beginning. This movie went on to win the BAFTA Award for France in the Best Actress category for Jean Seberg and then the Best Director Award for John luc Godard in the Berlin International Festival. This has a 7.7 on IMDb. It has a 97% critic rating and a 90% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And you can find this on many lists in which they state the best movies ever created. Robert Ebert, a very popular critic, has this on his great movie list. It's part of the Criterion Collection. It's part of the 100 Essential Toronto International Film Festival movies. So when it's not only one of the best French New Wave films, it's just regarded as one of the best films out there. And one of the, of course, must-see. Yeah, Roger Ebert actually said that modern movies begin here with Breathless. And he said that no debut film since Citizen Kane has been as influential as this. And I'm not sure who said it, but I also saw someone said, a critic said, that there was film before Breathless, and then there was film after Breathless, just talking about the kind of influence it had in film overall, not just French cinema, but all cinema. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of influence this had that we'll be talking about. Some very popular people as well. Now, this film was kind of interesting because Jean-Luc Godard started as a film critic. Like I said, this was his first, first feature film. And Francois Truffaut, he actually wrote the the concept for the screenplay. Godard is known for not really having a screenplay. He's known for writing the screenplay the night before and just kind of showing up to set with it. Um, But it's definitely an interesting crafted film, and we'll kind of get into that a little bit later. It definitely was low budget. I did read as well that a lot of this was filmed on the day that it was written, which reminded me of a recently popular movie, or popular in the sense that everybody knew about it, not so much because it was good, Matrix Resurrections. Before the movie was released, they were talking about how they didn't do that much rehearsing for that film. You know, they were just, they just went out there and they just did it. And that movie has a lot of problems, but I don't think that was one of the issues. So it's a tactic that can work. I hope that your opinion on this film was a little bit better than Matrix Resurrections. I I still keep forgetting what Matrix is which. Revelations, revolutions, I don't know. They're all the same, to be honest to me. (laughs) Yeah, that's a pretty low bar, so... But I'm not going to spoil my opinion. Uh, On the Matrix? I was going to say, we've been over this already. (laughs) Oh, no, like I said, Matrix was a low bar. (laughs) Unless you're trying to get me to segue into my opinion of this film. Yeah. I want to start off by saying though, what a opening line this film has. So it's interesting because I went to rewatch this and I'm not sure where I watched it the first time I did it. I think it was the Criterion version um, of the film. The Criterion released their their version, I think in 2000, 2014, I want to say. But I do have a DVD of this film and the DVD version I had was a 2008 
Vaw Band Collection release, and I don't recommend it. The dialogue, the subtitles for dialogue were just completely different than anywhere else that I've seen this film. But I, I do like the opening lines in both the translations. So the 2008, and I think it's a mistranslation, but it still kind of sounded cool, was, so I'm a son of a bitch, after all it's gotta be done, it has to. Versus the Criterion Collection, their version uh, with their subtitles is, after all, I'm an asshole, which is considered to be the correct translation. But but what an opening line, either way. What did you think of that line, Bryant? First, what was the name of the DVD that you have? I think it was Vauban, V-A-U-B-A-N collection. Is that French for bootleg? <laughs> I don't know. I think I found it like discount. It was like in one of those like discount bins at a barbershop. No, not, not it wasn't FYE, but it was kind of like a similar to that, like a more artsier FYE. But it, okay. it definitely was not the Criterion Collection. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think it's a great line. And actually, I'll be honest, I forgot about the line, but it makes a lot of sense. And it introduces you to the character in a very accurate way, in a way that I think in a lot of movies, they open up with that line. And show how this is a bad person and try to make them kind of like the worst person in the world. They're not actually the worst person in the world. It's just their insight on themselves for certain reasons. But no, this guy is both of those <laughs> things that you had just said. A son of a bitch and an asshole. <laughs> yes, very much so. So just a little bit of context to our film. And it, this is a hard film to spoiler. I think there is one thing at the end that we'll hold off on talking about because I think that's when you get into spoiler territory. But when you get into French New Wave films, they're not very concerned about the plot. They're more concerned about ideas and about making a film that feels real. So there's not too much to spoil I don't think for this film. Do you get that idea as well? I would say that there's not much to spoil, but I wouldn't use the term real because it, a lot of the a lot of the things that the French New Wave does and is popular for is reminding you that you very much are watching a movie. I would say that's naturalistic. A lot of the dialogue, a lot of the shooting, a lot of the way that the people react and move, it's a bit more natural. See, but, I think I think that's the reason why I say real because it's real in that you're viewing something, as opposed to having that suspension of belief. Okay, so it's kind of like keeping it real. Yeah, it's keeping it real. <laughs> yeah, they they know you're watching a movie. They know you know that they know you know, and they're keeping it real. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> But so the basic premise of our story here is that our main character, Michel, uh, he's not really a good guy. He kind of just steals cars for a living. And at one point in the beginning, he steals a car, steals an American car. And in it, he finds an American pistol that someone just left their pistol in their car. Oops. Um, but he begins driving quite recklessly. In this stolen car. Not not a very smart move, I don't think. But he does get chased by the cops. And at some point, he actually does shoot a cop. And so the film follows him, Michel, as he's, you know, trying to keep a low profile. Kind of. He decides to, to go back to Paris. He finds this girl that he's been seeing. This American girl who works for the New York Herald Tribune. 
and he holds up in her apartment for a bit, and he's trying to convince her to go with him to Italy to be on the run. And so that's the basic premise of this film. Like I said, there are spoilers that we'll talk about a little bit later, but I just wanted to give you a gist of what's going on here and with this character. So, Brian, what did you think about this character of Michel? The character, just like the opening says, he is an a-hole. At first, it is kind of jarring, his character. And not just because he's a criminal. I think more of the sexism is a bit jarring. Because it was, I didn't understand at first if the movie was doing this intentional to do some kind of juxtaposition to the American cinema at the time where they had a lot of a lot of leading men who are very smooth they are you know womanizers lady killers but they still had a sense of class to them you know you look at Humphrey Bogart and Sean Connery those are what you usually saw and then the movie actually shows him side by side of Humphrey Bogart and he starts doing that thing where he's rubbing his lips like Humphrey Bogart and then I understood okay, you guys are intentionally doing a contrast to Humphrey Bogart and you aren't really supposed to, at least I don't feel like you're intentionally supposed to love this guy. And I think it, the way it plays out, it kind of all comes together and that's where it gets a bit spoilery. His character was fun to watch, if not just interesting to listen to. He was engaging. You can see why at least somebody would stick around to listen to him, even though he's just throwing out a bunch of bullcrap. And it does have a sense of romanticism in that he is on the run, but he's not running. He is very much just trying to get this girl. Well, first, he's just trying to get this girl to uh, sleep with him. And then he's trying to go on the run with her. When he should be getting out of Paris, he sticks around and he wants to first have this connection and leave with her before bearing himself and getting out of town. So that in itself, I think with any other character could be looked at as a very noble thing. So it's a very complex character. I, I wouldn't even say very complex. It's a complex in a simple sense, as far as like what we conventionally see. Yeah, I said earlier that the French New Wave in general is definitely a rejection of the Hollywood movie of the American studio system. And this one, I think, even more so than other films that I've seen, does that well. There's very much this theme of imitation in this film with Michelle's character. You know, he's imitating this Humphrey Gogart type character. He's trying to measure himself up to this character. And at the same time, the film itself is drawing parallels from all these American films and taking things from these in an almost parody sort of way. And, it, and that is a form of imitation in itself, but at the same time, rejecting it. So I thought that was very interesting. And I did see one quote that kind of said that Michel was an actor in a film of his own making. And I definitely believe that. But the things that he does are so outlandish sometimes. He's definitely a a loud character i think just with his mannerisms he's very much on screen he's just a big presence and john paul belmondo played just a good role with him but i definitely get the idea that he's a character that he wants to be perceived in a certain way but he just doesn't quite measure up yeah i definitely agree with that with this is how he thinks he is but not what we're seeing and what he's actually portraying like he's buying his own 
he's buying his own bullcrap. And I think, too, even to a degree, you see it with his girlfriend, Patricia, just this idea of imitation. She seems to kind of be, in a way, you see her in her apartment. She's hanging up these artwork. She's making references to these books. And I think she's trying to be something, be this kind of intellectual, strong woman. But at the same time, she's being seduced. So there's kind of this idea that she's imitating the life that she wants while also entertaining this guy in her bed. Or at least that's the idea that I got from it. Yeah, I didn't draw that conclusion at first, but I definitely see it. Mm -hmm. What did you think of her character? Kind of same thing with Michelle, where she's a complex character in a simple sense. Again, just kind of going against the conventional. Like you said, she very much wants to be this progressor in society and with her books and reviews but she's also not so much easily seduced but she still is seduced by not just this man but other men as well but I did like her I did like her character I liked her portrayal of her I mean everything that she was supposed to do she did well and I can also see why Michelle would very much be in love with her she's someone that kind of captivates you at times so going off the characters, I mean, this is such a character-driven story. So what you think of the characters, is it's going to have an impact on how you view the film as a whole. But so what did you think about this film overall, this being your first viewing of this movie? So I've been using this word a lot. I need to find a new synonym for it, but it's an interesting movie. It very much is. It, like you said, it has a simple plot to it. So a lot of it falls on the characters, the few characters you have. I believe they only had eight characters actually working for this film. And then the dialogue. And the dialogue moves as fast as the movie does in an unstructured way that keeps you engaged. A movie that forced time can be appreciated for a lot of past it paved. And I think the experiment pays off for the most part. I did find some randomness just to be random. To find some scenes just to happen just because they wanted it to happen. I didn't really see how it went into the story. But I think for the most part, it plays out well. Even the sexism, which is jarring at first, like I said, it does come back around in a what I feel is a satisfying ending. Uh, I enjoyed the film, loved what it did and what it influenced, but I didn't love this film. I still like it. still like it a lot, but I didn't love it. Yeah, I want to say, I think that this film has sexism in it, but I don't think it's a sexist film at all. And I know that there's been some debate with that, with this film, but I feel like that's something where you really need to analyze what it's actually saying. I, I don't think this is a sexist film at all. I think, I think the character is a bit, I don't think the film is sexist. I don't think the film is sexist. When I say the sexism, it's the sexism that's being portrayed by the main character. And since you're spending the beginning of this film very much with the main character, that is kind of all you're seeing at first. But then when Gene Seberg shows up on screen, you can tell that the movie is not being sexist in itself. It's just this character. It's not like all the men are sexist towards her. And it's not like her character is being dumbed down or played just as a manic pixie girl or a dumb blonde. At least she was blonde. Yeah, I think she's blonde. She looked blonde in the black and white film. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think the film is sexist. It's just the character and 
when that's what the first thing you see and that's what you're spending a lot of time with, start to wonder, but I think it clears up. And like I said, I like how it comes back around. I feel like the sexism, though, also just had a realness to it in a way that felt very timely even for today's society. I mean, there's such an openness in this film that you don't see in American films to the idea of casual sex, casual dating, that I appreciated. I thought it felt, gave it a more of a modern twist, even though it was in the 1960s. It's kind of funny, though, because while it has this openness to casual sex, Michelle is upset when Patricia kisses someone else, even though he's been involved with other women as well throughout this film. So that kind of double standard just felt so real. (laughs) Like, this isn't like, I don't think it's quite the machismo that we see in a lot of older American films when you talk about sexism in that sense I felt like the sexism felt more prevalent to today's society actually I can see that because I had a thought while watching this and one I don't curse and two this is a PG-13 podcast but he reminded me of what I'm going to call a thirsty boy an (laughs) f-boy he's the type that if they had cell phones during this time he would be texting her, hey, you up? I'm coming through Paris. What you doing? Yep, exactly. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what's the, the PG-13 way to say that because that's exactly what he is. <laughs> yeah, and then he'd be the one that gets mad when she doesn't want to sleep with him, which he does. And he's, he's like, eh, that's fine. I have other women. Mm-hmm. Like I can just see his Tinder profile right now. <laughs> I would like to see his Tinder profile. That would be an interesting yeah. find. <laughs> He would be that guy in the beginning of Fresh. Oh, yeah. The first guy. Yep. You haven't seen Fresh. Go watch it. It's great. Yes, it is. And also, if your date ever tells you, hey, they don't take card, make sure you bring cash. You're a woman. That's a that's a red flag. Oh, absolutely. I will say this is my second viewing of this film, as I said. And the first time I watched it, there was such a disconnect. I think Godard is a director that you kind of have to get used to in order to really enjoy. So that being my first Godard film that I've ever seen, it it was a little bit more of a struggle um, getting into it, getting used to the style, especially having not watched many films that were like that at the time. I watched this several, several years ago, but I never really ranked it much among my favorite Godard films, but I'm definitely going to have to reevaluate after this watch because I I enjoyed this film quite a bit more than I did on my first viewing actually I thought it was a really fun movie and I think that the apartment scene in particular when he's holed up with her in her apartment there is a quite long scene between the two of them and it's kind of a a seduction type of scene that you see these characters going back and forth with the dialogue with the main purpose of him trying to seduce her but I thought that scene was just one of the best scenes I've seen in film overall. I think when you talk about dialogue and performance, it, I think it was done brilliantly. I did like that scene as well, where they're, they're in the apartment. It reminded me of Contempt as well, where they're just kind of walking through the house, walking through a literal door that's missing a big chunk of it. And I like that, just that back and forth. And again, I think that's where some of the naturalism comes in place because they're not even finishing some of their conversations. They just move on to the next the next topic or they just go back to their intentions, which his was sleeping with her. 
And again, that's why I said this character, at least I can understand why somebody will stick around with them for a little bit because it is engaging the dialogue that they have. Also, that apartment scene, that apartment was very small and you only see like a small part of it. You pretty much only see in the bed because there's not much more floor plan to that room. And the floor that they do have available is being taken by the crew. Even the, I believe the script reader or yeah, the script reader was outside of the door looking in. Not everyone could fit into this small apartment. Script supervisor? Yes, yeah, script supervisor. The script supervisor, for those of you who are not familiar, is the role on a film set who is in charge of making sure of continuity issues and stuff. They take notes on what's happening in each shot for continuity's sake to, and to help the editor later on when they go to edit the film. Now, there's definitely a lot of creative filmmaking techniques in this film. I mentioned before that because the French New Wave films were so low budget, you do often see a lot of creative techniques. One shot in particular was a long tracking shot that we saw as our characters were walking along the streets of Paris. And we use a dolly, they used a dolly shot in that scene. But, you know, you can't afford a real dolly of real equipment. So I heard that they actually just used, put a person in a wheelchair and had them hold the camera and just kind of wheeled them along for that shot. <laughs> yes, I read that as well. That was confirmed. And I like the tracking shots they had in here. There's one where it's on our main character, Michelle. Like it's looking at him and the camera's moving back as he's walking forward. And again, that's something that I'm pretty sure was not seen too often during this time. Yeah, there are some interesting shots in this film that kind of play on perspective. You'll have moments when one character is talking, but the camera's never on them. There's a scene in the car where uh, Patricia and Michelle are having a conversation and the camera never leaves her. There are also some dialogue shots also in the car and in some other times where the perspective of the camera is just not what you would expect from a typical dialogue scene. Kind of gives that fly on the wall perspective. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, we talked about how the idea of suspending your realism is not something that Godard really wants you to do. So I think the camera perspective sometimes forces this um, idea that you're watching a film. In general, Godard does the opposite of what you would expect in most circumstances in his films. He makes the viewer an active audience a lot of times, and he does this by breaking the fourth wall. He does this by playing with the use or lack of sometimes music. Sometimes he'll have music in scenes. I can't remember if it was a moment in this film, but he'll have music in scenes. It'll just stop abruptly, and it kind of just makes you realize how much you're being manipulated as an audience by music. There's other times that, and you can see it in the apartment scene, where there are just loud sirens or loud sound effects that will just randomly come into the conversation. And he really wants you to feel like you're watching a film. And it's something that a lot of films don't do. Definitely for his time, that's something you didn't see. Especially a lot of movies from Hollywood were being recorded on set. So they were very much in control of the external sounds and elements so they could just edit that all out and they thought that was the right thing to do which it is there's there's two sides of it neither one is the wrong choice i would say that even overall not even just for its time with the extent that godard does godard i don't think that there's many films that quite 
do that that really go against the grain of suspension of disbelief? I don't think there's any director like that. I think there have been some films. I would have to think about that some more. I think some directors have had a film here and there where they mimic the same thing, but mm-hmm. Godard made that his style. Yeah, definitely. Or there'll be films where they'll do it for a couple scenes, but Godard commits to it, definitely. Yeah, if Godard wanted to, he would be everywhere. When you're watching the movie, he'll sneak up behind you and just let you know, like, hey, hey, you know that's a movie, <laughs> right? Like, God dang it, man. Yeah. I love it, though. It's part of the reasons why I just like him and his style, because it's it's so self-aware. But he also just has fun with it. I feel like sometimes he just has fun with it. I think that, too, because the movies aren't being taken too seriously. They may have serious subject matter, such as killing a cop or robbing somebody like the Band of Outsiders. And actually, talking about the Band of Outsiders, there's a scene that I want to mention because we're not going to be able to watch the movie on this show is the scene where they're in the coffee shop and they decide that they're going to have silence for, I think, like 45 seconds or something. Mm. And then the movie completely gets rid of all sound. It is completely silent. And again, that's when that happens, you realize like how much really is going on in the terms of sound. Yeah, Band of Outsiders is a great film, and that's another one that has the um, omniscient narrator that we don't see in Breathless, but that also is a big style point in the French New Wave. With his films, too, that is nice, is that they're short. They're only an hour and 30 minutes, usually. Actually, he cut 30 minutes from this film. This film was originally two hours long, and I'm for all film lengths. I've watched... And hour 20 films, I watch short films all the way to watching five-hour epics. Looking at you, Cleopatra. Love Elizabeth Taylor. That one was pretty easy. Mm-hmm. But his films are short. So it's do- it doesn't feel like he's indulging himself too much. It's not like he wants you to see everything. He's just picking out a piece. And it's almost like he's not putting on a whole art show, but he's showing you a couple paintings. And that's nice because there's... Another director out there who takes influence from him that we'll get to during our influence that I think he does become self-indulgent. And then you're watching this two-hour film that doesn't need to be two hours, two and a half, three hours. Actually, two hours is modest for this one. It's more like your two and a half and three-hour films. Kind of like Terrace Malick is another one who has films that go on for a very long time just so that you can witness his art. Yeah, I know exactly what director you're thinking of, but we'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast. But I'm glad you talked about editing because Breathless, one of the things that it's most known for is its jump cuts. Uh, A jump cut, for those of you who don't know, it's when you cut out a portion on the, the strip, I guess you would call it, or in digital terms, you would cut out a part of a scene, so you have two shots next to each other. It's usually the same shot, but there's a jump in between. It, it's typically a filmmaking rule not to have jump cuts. It's a, pretty much a no-no as far as basic filmmaking rules go, but Breathless is littered with them, and it became known for having its jump cuts. And the reason why it, it had this is because he had to do some editing on this film. He had to cut out some time. He had to cut out the extraneous moments in the scenes, But he wanted to do that 
four of those tedious moments within each individual scenes instead of cutting out whole scenes entirely. So you kind of have this choppy sort of scene in this film. A great one, if you want to look at a scene that has a lot of this, if you look at when Patricia is having coffee with her colleague, he read a story that she wrote and he's having a conversation with her and he's drinking coffee. And there's moments where it just jumps. The the scene just keeps moving forward and forward and it almost, it just kind of jumps through it. And it doesn't have that fluidity that you would see in most films. Once again, this is a way that he can also show you that this is a film and not a fluid suspension of realism. I keep saying suspension of realism, but it, most films it has that fluidity to it so that you believe that you're being swept up by the film and this just counteracts that entirely. He also wanted to get rid of some of the mundane, the getting rid of, you don't need to see your character sit down, put the sugar in the coffee, stir the coffee, and then drink the coffee. He had the person just enter the cafe, cut, they have coffee. Yeah, and as an audience, your your brain really just fills in the gap, so it does become a little unnecessary. But the way he does it, it does, you, you, you're going to sense it. Some things mm-hmm. can be cut out and you know like, okay, yeah, this had taken place. Other things is like the character was standing here and all of a sudden now they're just in a completely different space. I guess if you want to make it real simplistic and kind of try to get your mind to see it without seeing the movie, if you're making a little flip book with a notepad, do that with a stick figure walking across and then get rid of a couple of those pages and all of a sudden the stick figure is now completely somewhere else. Oh, that's a really good example. But that, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's hard to say in editing terms what it is for people who might not yes. be editing. It's like before it'd be actually film strips that you would put together, edit, and, you know, back in the day when we actually used film. But in a digital world, it's, it's a little different. I was about to say, what do you mean we? And then I thought, oh, we did use film back in the day. When you had those cameras and you had to do the little mm-hmm. rolling thing. Yeah. God, we're old. <laughs> it's a different time. So is there anything else that you noticed about this film that you wanted to, to take note as far as the craft goes? Yes, there was something that was throwing Devin and I off, the rookie. People kept looking at the characters, and we were trying to figure out if that was intentional or not. Because what was throwing me off is why they weren't looking at the camera, but looking right at the character. Because I would think that if you're seeing filming, you would take a look at the camera first, notice it, and then take a look at the subject. Found out that... Again, guerrilla tactics here, they did not have the permits always to film the scenes. They did have some permits to film out on the streets. However, the French or the Paris law was that you needed a a completed script. So he actually faked a script, made a mock one, turned it in to get the permit. But they didn't always have the permit, so there was nobody to cut off the street. And I'm not sure exactly how they do it. But you'll cut off the street and anybody entering, let them know that, hey, you're going to be on camera. Do not look at the camera. But without that, these people were looking at the camera, looking at the subject. So it works out for this film. Again, reminding you that it's a film. Not sure if it was intentional, but it actually, it works out. Not really a film technique you would see anymore or anybody would purposely use. Yeah, typically with filmmaking, you would have production assistants who would lock up the set you would call it you would have you know on anywhere there's an entrance or a place where people might walk in you would put a pa but i don't know if they could afford pas in this production or how many they had but i'm not really sure 
But it is interesting that they film this all on location. Like like I said, there's no studio sets for these films. And so many of these films were just filmed on location. It was kind of interesting because I saw that this kind of creates this timeless snapshot of France at that time. Which I, I think works because, you know, these filmmakers in the French New Wave, like I said, they were going against the American grain. They wanted to show the, the French attitude from what... I've heard in an interview, I think it was uh, Truffaut who said that, but they wanted to make films in France about France that showed French people. So, you know, it works in that regard. I do really get a good feel about France during these times from these films because they take place in multiple locations. They're not avoiding the the hard to access. They're not wanting to build that studio, that set. Of course, a lot of it comes down to money. I mean, even with the cameras, they didn't have the right cameras to film during night, but they jerry-rigged their camera with different film, and they found a film that actually works that can take in more light so they can film during the nighttime as well. So they went to great lengths to make these films. You got your jerry-rigging, your guerrilla tactics. It's it, And it also, it just sounds fun. However, the set was not always fun. For instance, Gene Seberg and John luc Godard had a lot of tension. Especially because John Luc Godard, he was filming a lot of things on the set. Jean would sometimes fight with him. They've been known to go at each other's throats because she was used to the American filming. You know, very, very structured, very set. There's a famous portion at the end of the movie where she disagreed with the way that her character would react. They went at it for a bit and John Luc Godard said, fine, we'll do it your way. When she watched the film and they had her redub it, the reason they had to redub it is because the handheld cameras were too loud, so they had to go back and they had to put the dialogue over them talking, much like animation. But when she watched it, she realized, okay, never mind, John luc Godard, I, I now see what he was saying. It's much better if we do it his way, which is why she does something different for dub and the reactions don't really match up. Also, as much as hard work as John luc Godard did for this film, he did take a sick day. That was not really a sick day. He what? called in, said that he had food poisoning. And at the time, the producer, Beauregard, the crew call producer, he was very upset about this. Even though one of the other crew members said, it's not a big deal. We only have eight cast members. Take a sick day. It's whatever. You don't have to do a lot of scheduling around for that as you would with much larger films. If you imagine telling a blockbuster like, hey, we got to do rescheduling with actors that are have a whole set filming schedule for like a hundred people. But then Beauregard now having the day off decides to go to a cafe and sees John Luc Godard there having a drink. So Beauregard and him got into it and it actually led into a fist fight and they had to be pulled off by reporters. But afterwards, you know, with the success of the film and everything and Beauregard did highly respect Godard the reason actually he gave him this film to direct and helped him produce it is because Godard, being the film critic that he was, came up to him and said, Hey, your movie that you just, your last movie that you made was a piece of crap. I told him outright. And Beauregard admired that, admired him coming up forth and being like, Hey, I could do something better. Like, all right, let's see it. Yeah, I actually didn't know that story. Did he say why he took off? Was he just like stressed and not feeling it? Or did he just really want a drink at the cafe? <laughs> I guess he just wasn't feeling it. And he even told Beauregard before filming that, hey, like, I'm really excited to do this. I may be going through some moods as I'm filming. And I mean, the movie does sound stressful. 
even if it's low budget, actually low budget even sounds stressful. This man yeah. had to push his cinematographer around in a wheelchair, had to jerry-rig his camera so that it can film right. Like, who knows how much film he went through trying to push it through all these different cameras. Being in a, a heated apartment with eight other people, luckily, they said luckily the lights weren't on during that scene. I don't know how they did it. Or what? I guess because the lights would have generated even more heat. So luckily that wasn't the case. So this was a stressful shoot. Now, it's not like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it was a bit stressful. Yeah, I never used a lot of natural lighting in scenes. Which was another French New Wave tactic. Mm -hmm. Oh, actually, that's why that's why they were luck glad that they didn't have lights because they don't know how they would have fit the lights in that apartment. Yeah, but it's interesting because a lot of times they didn't usually use ADR. They didn't dub the voices over later in French New Wave. A lot of times what you hear is actually just recorded straight from the day, which is not very common in a lot of films. That majority of the film would be that way. And I'm sure in other films, I'm trying to think of which one it was or which ones, but you can hear the camera rolling. And that's what the problem was with this film is because the camera they were using, it just, it was too loud. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to hear about Jean Seberg. Like I said, I think he chose her because of her roles in American films. So it was interesting to see that they didn't always get along. I think Godard is known for being a little bit more meticulous on set. Um, He kind of is, I feel like, kind of your typical director in that way. I think we get this idea that directors, especially older directors, tend to be my way or the highway, kind of that artsy kind of enigma. (laughs) I can see that. I don't think he was... The worst. I don't think he was Stanley Kubrick level, Mm-mm. but he was very meticulous, and like I say, he was at they were at each other's throats. Him and the actress. Kind of just a funny side story. Anna Karina, who is known for many of Godard's films, his muse, I guess you could say, but she also was his wife for a time. She was supposed to have a role in Breathless. I think that she was supposed to play the first girl's apartment that Michelle visits. But she actually turned it down because she didn't want to undress in the film. And and she told him point blank, I'm not going to undress, so I'm not going to take this role. And I was like, all right. So then after the success of Breathless, she came back for another role. And he was like, all right, you can have it. And she was like, what, just like that? He said, yeah, it's fine. She was like, I'm not going to undress. He was like, yeah, it's all right. It's a political film. You won't have to. You just you got the role. It's fine. <laughs> it's a political film. Okay. You know the standards of political films. All right. <laughs> so kind of just a funny story. Although it would have been kind of cool just to see her in there. But I, I love Anna Karina. I think that she's wonderful. And I I don't really like calling her Godard's muse because I think there's a lot more to her too that. I think she's a phenomenal actress and she actually directed some films herself as well that I still need to watch. But she's definitely an influential part in Godard's films. But it would have been interesting to see her in there. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the films that I have seen with her. Band of Outsiders. She's the main girl in that one. Okay. I definitely hear that name time and time again. She was actually in a film, Pierre Lefaux by Godard, also starring opposite Jean-Paul Belmondo. Okay. I think I've heard of that one. Yeah. So is there any other uh, notes that you had on, what about the story of the film or, or anything like that? Last thing I'll say, it kind of goes into my overall opinion, is that there's a line that I absolutely loved in this film and I'm going to start using. I wonder if it's the big line. There is a one big line I'll mention, but I'm, maybe not. Maybe it's not the same line. 
what, what is the context for your big line? Well, like the, the most commonly quoted line from this film. Is it during the interview with the reporter? No, before then. Okay. Yes. So my favorite line, which should be the most popular line, is she's talking to, I believe it's a novelist or some type of writer, and she asks him twice, what is your ambition? What is your greatest ambition? And I believe he takes off his glasses, or at least in my mind, he takes off his glasses and seriously tells her to become immortal and then, then die. die. Yeah, that was a great line. I, I love that line. Anytime anybody asks me what I want to do now, that's what, <laughs> that's that's what you're going to answer. What, when they ask me, where do I want this podcast to take us? Immortality, <laughs> then die. I think that's a good sequence of events. <laughs> no, that really is a great line. I think that the big quote that's usually quoted from this film is uh, during the cafe when Patricia's meeting with her colleague, she says, I don't know if I'm unhappy because I'm not free or if I'm not free because I'm unhappy. And that's also, I think, a really good line from this film. Yeah, that one is good as well. I feel like all of his films really have that, like, one or two quotes that just kind of stand out and they they belong on a poster, really. (laughs) I would get a poster with that. (laughs) Oh, we talked about uh, the breaking of the fourth wall a little bit. Did you have any thoughts on that as this film? No. I mean, it was there. Again, I just felt like it's a little little wink and a nod that you're, again, watching a movie. I think the fourth wall is played better in Band of Outsiders. I think it adds a little something to the story with it. Here, I don't think it was out of place. But again, it was just another thing to say, hey, you're watching a movie. Yeah. I think one of my favorite fourth wall moments from Godard was in uh, Pierre Lefeux, which it's not my favorite Godard film. I'd probably have to go back and rewatch it, to be honest. But but there's a moment where they're in the car and John Paul Belmondo's turns back to the camera and starts talking to the camera. And Anna Karina's in the passenger seat next to him. And she just says, who are you talking to? And he says, the audience, of course. <laughs> and I think that, that that was just such a fun moment in that film. I think that's a good moment. So let's go on and talk a little bit about the influence that this film had. I mean, obviously, this film went on to inspire lots of other films. It's, it was a game changer, to be honest, in the way that filmmaking was done. Like I said, there was film before Breathless and there was film after Breathless. And there's a lot of films that directly reference to it. And there's a lot of films that just took from that craft. One of the films that really referenced Breathless was Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, that was a big one. It's filled with references to Breathless. And another one is a director that I think you were going to mention earlier. Let's see. I'm wondering if it's the same director. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, it is. And I think we even mentioned that he had his influence from the French New Wave before on the show. I know you told me that he got his studio name from the band of Outsiders. Before I mention his name, I just want to say real quick by Bonnie and Clyde. I didn't know Bonnie and Clyde referenced Breathless, so I am going to have to watch that again because I really like Bonnie and Clyde. Mm -hmm. I watched it a long time ago when I was first getting into movies. So I want to watch that now with this context. That's actually one I haven't seen. (laughs) Oh, okay. So we're going to do it for the show. Yeah, All right, little, a little so. switch. You've seen Breathless, I've seen Bonnie Clyde, see what they are. We have different opinions. But the big director, and I know it kind of sounded like I was talking crap about him, and I, I kind of am, because he is the director that I very much like and dislike, and that's Quentin Tarantino, who everybody knows, Quentin Tarantino. I love a lot of his films. However, most recently, not so much. And I mean most recently. 
I think since Django Unchained, I haven't been feeling his movies anymore. I love Kill Bill, but I think Kill Bill has some issues as well that you start to see him start getting kind of self-indulgent, referencing really hard, going on for a little bit too long. I think that's kind of the the warning of the storm with Kill Bill, so I can still enjoy Kill Bill, but I think his films afterwards, they're just a, again, a little too self-indulgent, which I think John Luke Godard maybe is a bit self-indulgent, but he keeps it short. He keeps it short, and I don't feel like it's too much in your face. But Tarantino, he is a great director. He's a phenomenal director. He is also a phenomenal writer. That's something I can't make any complaints really about is his writing. His writing is top-notch, and I can see a lot of the influence in his writing coming from Jean-Luc Godard. I can see it even with Breathless, that apartment scene when you're having those conversations. And again, with that naturalistic conversation, a lot of times in Quentin Tarantino's movies, if you look at Pulp Fiction, when they're having the conversation about the feet, they're just having this conversation. It may not go towards the story. It may not give you like the full character insight but it is a conversation that you are watching and it is really engaging if not for the dialogue alone but Tarantino is the biggest director out there that has been influenced by the French New Wave and he's the most well-known I believe there's probably there's lots of others and there's a lot of people who may not draw direct influence from Jean-Luc Godard or from the French New Wave but somewhere down the line indirectly they were influenced by them yeah, I would say that a lot of filmmakers probably don't even know that that's where they're getting that from. Like a lot of these, the French New Wave opened up a whole new set of possibilities for filmmaking. And it's something that just is an influence overall. And it's kind of, it's even hard to, as I was trying to do my research for this podcast, it was hard to find direct influences because it just was. Like, if I had to list every single film that was influenced by Breathless by the French to leave, I mean, we'd be here for days. <laughs> yes, definitely. I will say that, that there was a remake of Breathless, an American remake, in 1983 uh, starring Richard Gere. It was set in L.A., and I haven't seen this to be honest, I don't have a desire to watch this because I don't really see how it works. I'm honestly not entirely sure how they even had the go-ahead to make this film. It kind of seems like America wanted in on the joke and then, yeah, I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, America was remaking a lot. I would be interested to see when they started remaking a lot because everybody thinks, oh, we just now started doing it. No, no, we haven't. Uh, especially the 80s. 80s just seems like a bad time for remakes. I think they had a good decision on that they made it the Michelle character an American and then made the love interest uh, French. So it looks like there was some thought put into it. I'll be interested to see it and see how it plays out because I think this movie is good mainly for what it does, for it being experimental. So if you play it straight, I don't think this is the best straight movie. No, that's what I said. I can't, I can't see how this would work at all as a remake. Yeah, and it has mediocre reviews, so... Yeah, I doubted it would be anything. We talked about the jump cuts as well. Uh, that's where, you know, we get a lot of those jump cuts and some rough editing. 
from this film. This film introduced it in a way that, hey, you can make it work and you can have some artistic freedom with it and you can send a different message through this depiction. It kind of reminds me of Edgar Wright's editing, but in a opposite sense. Like, it's just as quick, but while Godard got rid of all the little mundane things that we already know about, Edgar Wright will capitalize on it. Such as Scott Pilgrim, when he's getting ready to go out and fight, he's actually, Edgar Wright has it a couple times, his gearing up scenes, where Scott Pilgrim, he puts on his coat, he grabs his hat, the movie slows down for a quick second through a quick cut, but it's Scott Pilgrim tying his shoe like a child, and then you know, tightening it up and then going back out there with another cut. So I wonder if Edgar Wright had any kind of influence or again, maybe he just saw different ways that people were editing and made his own editing, not knowing that he was probably influenced by Godard showing that, hey, there's more ways than one to edit. Yeah, that's a good question. I know I've seen a lot of films with like quick cuts, um, but I don't know. Like I'm trying to think of modern jump cuts. I feel like not many films are as liberal with it as Godard. That's why I said, obviously, it's an influence and Godard has an influence. But even from a modern perspective, Godard still uses experimental film in a way that no one else does, even from a modern setting. And I think that in a way that makes it hold up a bit more. Yeah, I just think it would be hard to do it in a modern sense. I'm not really sure why. I just, one, I don't see any studio really backing it. And two, if they did, I feel like they wouldn't do it enough. Like they wouldn't get the right balance with it. Well, I feel like right now we're such in a studio world again. You know, I think that there is a period of time in America, um, you know, from we talked about the film school generation that they were doing a lot of experimental stuff and they were getting a lot of influences abroad in their films. But now it kind of seems that we've reverted back to the studio system. We have, you know, the D word. (laughs) (laughs) Shelling out movies every other month. And they're all form... The techniques that are going into these films and and the way that they're created, there's not that same level of experimentalness to it. It's not... There's no room for stuff like what Godard was doing, what the film school was doing as far as changing how these films operate. And I almost feel like we are really in need of an overhaul again. I am going to disagree with you, which feels nice. You know, I can see why you say it so much. Uh, One, yeah, the D word. Definitely, definitely studio. Not going to say who they are. I feel like Mickey Mouse coming in here like, what's the D word? Like, no, I meant meant Warner Brothers Discovery. It's Discovery. (laughs) But the... I think the studios still very much hold a lot of the cards. Hollywood is Hollywood. Like they've always been Hollywood. That's what the French were opposing. They were opposing Hollywood and Hollywood has still stayed very much the same as far as making movies. Now they got like their other things that are going on, social issues and politics. They've been changing, but they still believe to only invest in what they believe is a strong product. They don't like taking chances. And I can sometimes understand that. You know, we talk about the D word. I'll go ahead and mention it. I got my Mickey ears in the back. Disney. 
used to wonder why Disney didn't take chances. And then I looked at it and you had movies such as Tomorrow World and A Wrinkle in Time, which were box office flops. So they're like, all right, well, if you guys aren't going to, if you guys don't want that, if you don't want those original products, hey, what about this Disney remake? Bam, makes a billion dollars at the box office. So I can understand for the studio. But I wouldn't I think say Tomorrowland and Wrinkle in Time are underrated gems, though. I think they got what they deserved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying they're gems. And it's also it's tomorrow. Is Tomorrowland or Tomorrow World? I think it's land. I'm not really yeah, sure. I think it's the land. I don't know. They based it off of one of their rides. I was excited for that film, too. And then, no. It yeah, was, I remember it you were. Great. Not great. But they don't want to take the chances on those movies, even if, they pref- even if they're like mediocre. Because you know, the mediocre superhero movie is still going to make a lot of money. Even now, like even the below average superhero movies have a chance to make a lot of money. Well, I feel like those Disney movies like Tomorrowland, they're being released, but they're being released directly to Disney+. Plus. They're not getting the, even from Disney, they're not getting the theater theatrical releases. And that brings me to my next point. I think streaming, I think two facilities are bringing in the originality. I think streaming and A24. I think now that, of course, those are different studios. First talking distributor. about- Distributor. Yeah, distributor. First talking about streaming- well, I mean, A24 isn't a studio, it's a distributor. I still think A24 being a distributor, they're still providing us with new movies, with original movies, with movies where the directors have a lot of freedom, you know, for both good and bad, but they're doing a lot of things differently and they are still experimenting. I think, of course, when it comes to streaming, I think now we're getting more original IPs and projects and more director freedom when it comes to streaming as well. Actually, another one, I think, and it kind of goes with streaming, is TV shows. I think TV shows are still, are actually like kind of the wave from with being original and showing these original ideas and unconventional ideas. If you look at Atlanta, Atlanta is a show, it, you think it start out, it starts out straightforward. You know, it's about a rapper who's up and, up and coming and his cousin's trying to help him out, but it gets very surreal in some points. And the direction becomes very creative with that show. So I think, yeah, the the big studios are going to do what is not broken, what is still making them money. They may step their foot out, but if the water's too cold, they're going to step back. But I still think we're still in an age of a lot of content where there's a lot of good original properties and creators are able to do a lot of what they want to do. You know, we kind of lost that film school, uh, that film school wave. But I think it's also because now everybody's trying to go to film school. Film school isn't really that big of a thing anymore. Now anybody can go out, get their own camera. You can. There's been directors that have proven that you can make great movies on your phones. So I think I think it's there. It's just it's being overshadowed. Yeah, I'm I'm hesitant to agree with you because I mean it, it's proven that the studio system has. Um, negatively impacted the types of films that can get made and that can have a theatrical release i won't go too far into it but it has been proven especially with um you know you don't really get like the mid-budget action movies anymore it kind of seems like there's almost there's the studio films and then there's a24 and i don't like this idea either that a24 has somehow now has the monopoly on indie movies and artsy movies i don't like that idea either I mean, I love A24 movies, but 
I think that we need to move away from just A24. And I do agree that there is a lot more coming on streaming too. I don't disagree with you there. But as far as the money that you can pull in, it's not going to be the same as if you have a theatrical release and have the same kind of attention that these Marvel movies are making. And it's interesting because I feel like even in the early 2000s, you were seeing a lot of different kinds of movies. I don't say that they're all good, but you were seeing a wider variety of movies other than just a blockbuster entering the theaters. I mean, now, I mean, if you look even, talking, go back to A24, everything, everywhere, all at once right now is probably the most talked about film in general. And it's still so hard to even find it playing anywhere. And that's not streaming anywhere. So it is negative of reflecting some of these films. And so I'm just saying that I feel like we need theatrically to have a space to have films like this, films that are going to be an overall of the studio system. The studio definitely is having, they're the biggest influencer on the box office. There's no change in that. Thinking back to watching like the indie films before even A24 was super popular, I remember having to go out and look for the art theaters that were showing these projects and yeah, I do agree. A24, there should be another studio there. I'm kind of curious. <laughs> distributor. Well, I think A24 is kind of that, it's in a weird gray area. I think they studio back some things, but they're still primarily a distributor. Yes. And I'm wondering what happened to IFC, because IFC mm -hmm. was that big indie holder. That's true. And they're still making some things, but I don't know what happened to them. I'm wondering if A24 unintentionally push them to the side or if it's like you said the studios were having too much of an effect on the lower budget in the indie films and ifc had to take a step back because they even had their own channel yeah they did i do remember that but no i i feel like we definitely still have experimental films i would just like to see them without the A24 logo sometimes. And it's not anything against A24. I love A24. Um, I like a lot of their films, but I don't like this idea that they're the only ones backing these films because more people should be backing these films. I mean, bless A24 for doing that, but also, please, more people need to be throwing money at these movies because they work. I mean, A24 is such a big name now. People see A24 and they want to see these films, so there's no reason why there should be such limited theater showings for these films i just i don't get it but that's a whole nother tangent <laughs> yes and i actually i have more to say on it but like you said that's a whole nother tangent you know maybe we'll pick it up on our studio talk part two or part three because <laughs> we did talk about this a little bit with night of the living dead and representation in hollywood and they didn't really try it until black panther came out and all this but yeah that's that's a whole nother we we can probably do a whole episode on our perspectives of studios, distributors, their influences, how it's changed throughout the decades. Honestly, if I looked into it more, we could definitely do a, like two episodes on it. Oh, definitely. But it's going to get brought up again. So we'll, we'll pick it up. <laughs> but going back to Breathless. <laughs> oh, yeah. Didn't we watch that movie? Oh, yeah, that movie. But I do want to know, you know, we just kind of had this whole talk about you know, the mainstream studio movie. But I want to know who you would recommend this film to. Would you recommend it to a mainstream crowd? Would you recommend it to just, like, film students? Like, what kind of people would you recommend this movie to? Before I recommend it, there's one last thing I want to say about the influence. Like you said, parodies. This had a lot of on-the-nose references, which Hollywood was not doing before. They were being influenced by previous movies and directors, but they would not have it 
in your face on the screen, like showing a picture of Humphrey Bogart or having another director's name or another film's name in their movie. So that's something, again, you think about Quentin Tarantino, the Kill Bill outfit being directly from Bruce Lee. You wouldn't have seen that without the French New Wave. Now, as far as who I would recommend this for, it's kind of like the whole new wave is hard to recommend to a general audience, especially Jean-Luc Godard. I would, I think this is one of his more easily accessible ones, along with Band of Outsiders, but I still would probably only recommend this for cinephiles and occasionally a general audience member that is a bit interested in the film. I would at least like show them a clip of this movie. You know, just if I was explaining to them like, hey, this this is French New Wave, because I love talking about French New Wave and explaining it to people. And, you know, it's, it's a very influential time. I love it. So I would probably show somebody a clip of this, but I would still only recommend it really to the cinephiles. Yeah, I definitely agree. I feel like it is a hard film to recommend to someone who isn't used to that type of filmmaking. I mean, but you have to start somewhere. Um, do you think that this... Breathless is a good starting point for the French New Wave, or is there other films that you would recommend? I think this is probably the most accessible one. I really do. I would have to look at the other ones that I've seen, but because they're not even coming on the top of my head, well, the ones that are, I'm still looking at this film, like this is the best to go into. Either this or Band of Outsiders. You know, the other two films are 400 Blows, which you did say that you saw, and then there's Hiroshima Monomore. I know 400 Blows, from what I remember, it's been a while since I saw it. That was a more straightforward story, was it not? It's still a character story, but wasn't it a little bit more straightforward? I feel like Truffaut's style is a little bit more of what we're used to, slightly. Yeah, I think that one was more straightforward, from what I remember, too. I saw it a long time ago as well, probably like five years ago. I did watch uh, Hiroshima Monomore recently, and definitely not one... I would recommend willy-nilly, I guess you could say, just because of some of the subject matter, especially in the beginning. It's a very rough film to watch in the beginning portion of the film. So I think of those three, Breathless would probably be the one I would recommend as well, just because it is a little bit more of a fun movie, too. It doesn't take itself too serious. So I think we're ready to go into the classified portion of our podcast. This is our spoiler discussion. So if you haven't seen this film and you don't want to know how it ends, go watch it now. But then do come back. We're going to talk about if this film holds up in today's modern world. And we're also just going to talk about our overall rating and our final comments of this film. So go watch it, come back, and join us for that discussion. So let's talk about really the only thing that I think is you can truly spoil for this film, uh, the ending of this movie. Let's talk a little bit about the ending. I agree. This is the only thing you could really spoil with the film, just having such a simple plot. But the ending of the film, that's where I felt like the sexism, not paid off, but it's, you know, it came back around. I think in, again, if you're looking at it in a conventional sense, this man being your leading man, being a ladies man, he would have ran away with the girl. She would have never told on him. It would have been very much like Bonnie and Clyde and they ride off together or they die together, ride or die. So seeing her turn around and call the cops on him 
I thought that was that was great. And I think him not saying I wanted to see him die, but not get away with what he did. I think that was great as well. And it kind of held up with the bit of kind of not wackiness, but unusualness with it. When the guy throws the gun out there in front of him and drives <laughs> off and he goes and picks it up and then gets shot. It was, I don't know, I found that comedic. And I think this movie did have some comedy to it. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I really saw it as a, a triumph against sexism. I feel like... Not a triumph against sexism, but like the character, th- that, that was his most awful trait. So seeing this awful character not get away with what he did, I saw that as a triumph and, you know, the comeuppance. Wait, that was his most awful trait, not the fact that he murdered a man? <laughs> I didn't see much of that. You know, he was scared. He was nervous. That was quick. All right. Half of it was cut out. We don't know what exactly happened. I do know, you know, it wasn't cut out the way he was talking to, um, talking to Seaberg. And when he randomly got out of the taxi and lifted the girl's dress up and then got back in the car, that was one of those randomness. That I was like, what was the point of that? Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. For me, I think that the ending when Patricia decides to turn Michelle into the cops, it definitely showed for me kind of, I don't want to say her immaturity, but we see throughout this film that, you know, she's really trying to discover who she is, what she wants. She wants to fit in with society. She wants to, to do great things. And consistently, she says to Michelle that she doesn't know whether or not she loves him or not. And so, finally, I guess she makes her decision at the end of the movie, and instead of just, you know, telling him, hey, I don't love you, this is where this isn't gonna work, she calls the cops on him because that was the only way that she knew how to get rid of him. <laughs> and I don't think she anticipated him getting shot. I don't think that at all. He just kind of stays there with her instead of running because he's kind of just kind of pouting. I think it's just a pride thing. Yeah, it it could be a pride thing. It could be his little bit of romanticism he has wanting to stay with her and still try to make it work out. Maybe. <laughs> like we said, he's he's real he's real thirsty. He is. He definitely is. He hasn't been getting a lot of swipes on his Tinder profile. He's like <laughs> Cops going to be here any minute, but I got time. She ain't swiping right, so I guess I'll just die. (laughs) But he does get shot, and there's a long tracking shot when he's shot, but he's just just running, and you just kind of see him just holding his back and kind of losing stamina as he goes on until he eventually just falls, and that shot goes on forever. Again, it's going against the conventional. He didn't die in this bloody shootout. He didn't get down right away. He's got this shot in his middle of his back, his lower back. And he's got this very ungraceful run to him. There's nothing poetic about it. He just gets shot in the back or shot in the front and it goes through the back. What did you think of our ending shot? You know, she looks at him, Patricia looks at him, and she does these funny facial expressions that he said that she should do before. It kind of goes along with that theme of imitation I was talking about in a way. And then she does the Humphrey Bogart lip rub. And I thought that was a, an interesting way to end the end the movie. What did you think about that? I guess that could be showing her being the main character. This being her story, not his. 
actually taking the leading man trait for herself. Though I like his finishing line as well, which again, makes sense in the realm of his character and the modern day type of character this would be, where he says, you make me puke. (laughs) Again, it's just like the line when a girl rejects a, a boy and they go ahead and say, well, you're ugly anyway, or, you know, you're you're the B word. It's, it kind of reminds me of, is it in The Little Rascals? It's like, dear Darla, you make me vomit. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Dear Patricia, you make me want to puke. <laughs> the ending also reminded me of another ending, one of my favorite endings. And sorry, I was trying to find another term for F boy. Really blanking. Like I was like, did I guess a womanizer. Womanizer, player. Yeah, yeah, player. I guess that fits for our age more so. But a womanizer. That one's timeless. But I don't know. Sometimes when you say womanizer, people kind of think of like James Bond. Like a womanizer can still be smooth, but not this one. Maybe I just need to add an adjective to it. A disgraceful womanizer. Yeah. I I feel like yeah, I feel like he's not quite as I feel like with a womanizer, I kind of think more like Barney Stinson. Like there's, it's a fought out play to it. It's very manipulative. And I feel like he's just kind of going along with, (laughs) I don't think he's really excels at being, well, I guess he does excel at being manipulative, but he also is just kind of goofy in his approach. So is he a fall? And girls just kind of go for Womanizer? Huh? A fall womanizer? F-A-U-X? Foe? Foe. Jeez, I can't speak, I can't pronounce things. Fall foe. Yeah, I was like, wait, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, a foe womanizer. No, I mean, I guess he's still a womanizer. I just feel like the connotation of womanizer is, I don't know. He's not super, I don't find him intelligent enough to be super manipulative. But but also, like, honestly, watching that scene in the apartment, girls go for that. They're kind of just dumb guy and I, I mean she obviously i don't know i think she's trying to be this smart girl and and feel smart so i wonder if being with him made her feel better about herself personally speaking knowing women <laughs> i don't know I if that's sexist that. to say but i kind of got that vibe but going back breaking the conventional it reminds me of another ending that i really like in which i don't want to spoil the movie but you know when you have that and i believe i told you this before you know when you have that mysterious guy that's kind of always watching the girl? He doesn't really say much. He, he may be in school and maybe the quiet person, not the real popular one, has shades, rides a motorcycle. That's literally the character in this movie. He has shades, he rides a motorcycle. He's real mysterious. And the girl, the her friends are trying to bring her to this other man, but she's so interested in this guy because he's mysterious. So movie progresses. They eventually go out. They have this fantastic ride on the motorcycle. She gets with the mysterious guy. They go out to a field. Looks like they're about to lay out a picnic. It's all real nice and romantic. And he turns over and he just starts strangling her. And he kills her. And then he rides off. And then that's the movie. When again, in most movies, you would see that, oh, the mysterious guy has a very kind heart. He was just very shy, timid. They get together. Magic happens. They live happily ever after. But no, not in this film, which was also a French New Wave film. Probably the more realistic approach for this is more realistic that, oh, yeah, the mysterious creepy guy is probably going to do something mysterious and creepy. In this film, you don't see much of why she would really fall in love with him, put 
herself in so much risk when she's so career driven as well. So why would she want to be with this guy who is a murderer, is a murderer, doesn't treat her well, doesn't treat anybody well, is a straight up criminal, steals cars like they're nothing. And she has a good life set in front of her. She needs to become immortal, then die. (laughs) I'm sorry, what film are you talking about? I can't spoil I can only spoil Breathless. I can't spoil that movie. (laughs) So you're not going to save a title? (laughs) Because I've... I like that ending so much and and not to be like cynical. I'm not being cynical about it. It's not because I like to see some chick just get strangled. It's that it's just, it breaks that convention. And because the movie came out so early, it came out in the French new wave time. It's funny because it still holds up because we still have a lot of teen movies. We have um, not even just teen movies. We have the adult movies, 50 shades of gray and 365 days where we're supposed to love these real creepy dudes because they're mysterious and they're so unique and different. No, like these are, they're possible psychopaths. Uh, So I always tell people about this ending, but I never mention the film. So I'm going to kind of switch things up a little bit because I think it would segues a little bit better. But do you think that Breathless as a film holds up? I do. While I said that much of what can be appreciated in in this film is because of the time that it was made, but it still holds up in a modern watch. It still looks good. It still sounds good. And yeah, it's a simple story. It's not it's not a timely story. It's it's timeless. This was actually based on a true story. This is a real life event where somebody stole a car with their girlfriend to go see their sick mother and they were pulled over and they shot a cop, a motorcycle patrol. So it's kind of like that Bonnie and Clyde tale, but a little bit different as well. So I think, yeah, this holds up. I didn't feel like it was dated while I was watching it, other than knowing like, hey, a lot of these experiments are because of the French New Wave. Yeah, I actually agree. I think that the way that this approaches relationships just felt really real in a modern sense. Um, We talked about that apartment scene with the seduction scene, and I feel like even that felt... It had that sort of realism to it. It's something that you would expect to hear and see even today. And just that kind of approach to a casual sex, casual relationship. It's such a weird juxtaposition to American films that were being made about time. Because I feel like America has always been so much more conservative when it comes to sex and, and relationships. That I feel American films feel more dated than this does. I feel like also just this character... It's interesting to me that it makes the point that he's not Humphrey Bogart. He's not this suave man. But from a modern person, John Paul Belmondo is a way more attractive person than Humphrey Bogart. And something that I liked about the French New Wave films is that you feel as if you have age-appropriate relationships. Whereas in American films, there's always this Humphrey Bogart who seems old as heck dating this young actress, this young pretty actress, and the opposite in this film. And it just, that felt so, just feels so dated to me watching it. So it's kind of funny that, you know, the idea of this film is that he doesn't match up to Humphrey Bogart, but I'd, I'd take John Paul Blamondo over Humphrey Bogart any day. <laughs> How many Humphrey Bogart films have you seen, though? Uh, was he in The Maltese Falcon? I don't remember. Yeah, he was. You saw that? Yeah, I've seen Maltese Falcon. That might be the only one I've really 
truly seen. I, I don't like American movies for that reason. I I did not like the Maltese Falcon, but just the age gaps just really bother me. And it's, I don't like the leading men at all in a lot of these movies. I mean, Hitchcock's movies have the same thing with Cary Grant in a lot of these roles. It's just like this old man just shacking up with this this young thing and I'm like why why are they interested in you I remember liking the Maltese Falcon I do agree that problem is there I think again I compare it to another actor Sean Connery I think it shows up in the James Bond films as well especially like later on I guess an argument can be made though for both because they are so suave and their voice you know, it is enticing Humphrey Bogart has a very interesting voice i think he is a very suave guy just like sean connery oh, man. and while like suave doesn't do much for me as a, as a woman <laughs> i feel like that might be the male gaze versus the female gaze type of thing and actually james bond just came out two years after this film so definitely weren't trying to trying to play it off of him but i guess if the smooth doesn't work that could be the male fantasy because apparently what really works is just treating them like crap yeah there you go i don't know i don't have any games so what do i know this is probably why i'm trying to be humphrey bogart i need to be this dude here but also i don't want to be shot so well it didn't work out for this guy either because the girl went ahead and called the cops on him yeah but you haven't seen you haven't seen casablanca i haven't seen casablanca yes i think this ending as well uh and breathless is contrary to that ending as well. I know we're going to do that episode one day, so that question will come about again. Yeah, and it's not to say that there aren't older American films that I in- don't enjoy and that do hold up. I mean, uh, Streetcar Named Desire is one of them we watched together that is older and I think holds up. And Brando, in general, I think fits more of a younger leading man who actually is attractive and we can understand why he's that sex symbol um and james dean i mean obviously we had some american stars there but there are a lot of older films that i just don't don't think really do it for me as far as it holding up and me believing that this leading man should be a leading man (laughs) i think i think of the actresses more like audrey hepburn elizabeth taylor yeah well i mean the actresses were always young and hot and then the men were just like grandpas (laughs) Yeah, that is true. Who was the love interest in Breakfast at Tiffany's? He was okay. He was fine. I don't know his name, but he was a bit younger. Yeah, in uh, A Place on the Sun or In the Sun with uh, Elizabeth Taylor, he wasn't much older. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. We we have a ton of these films to look into and discuss still. We haven't mm-hmm. seen them all. But even I, so with the idea of sex and casual sex, like I said, there's definitely more of a liberal approach in the French New Wave and in French cinema. And, and that's kind of always been known. I think a lot of times when you're talking about old Hollywood, it's kind of like, oh, she was in a French film. She got nude, you know, <laughs> like it was kind of that conversation of it. And so I don't know what Seberg's legacy was after um after breathless i mean obviously she didn't get nude in the film but i'm curious to see what her career did after that i know that there is a biopic on her starring christian stewart that i do want to check out um eventually so that would be interesting to watch like i said i'm not entirely sure of her life i think there was some political things involved in that biopic but i'm i'm not entirely sure so i'm not gonna go too much into that she had a better career 
after this movie. She started picking up some things. Before this, she had two flops, which is why Godard picked her up. He thought that she was still noticeable. And we have that now, like where there are some actors and actresses that are noticeable, but so far they haven't got any good roles. So he thought she was popular enough, but still humble enough to do this film on a lower budget, even though one sixth of this movie's budget did go to her. Uh, and then unfortunately, I'm not, she didn't have a long career because unfortunately she did commit suicide at the age 40. I, I didn't know that, so that is sad to hear, but I would definitely be interested in watching that biopic. So let's go ahead and talk about why it was significant for its time. And I don't think we need to talk too extensively about this. I think we already talked about how um, this was a time when American films were coming in and that the French industry was very focused on on that. So this was definitely a way for the French to kind of bring back their Frenchness to the industry to create films that were inherently French. Yes, and it's probably why France is still, to me, like my favorite provider of movies is, of course, America. There's just, there's a wide variety of them, and I grew up with a lot of them. But then next up is France. The French produce a lot of good films, and they do have a uniqueness to them. They are different than the American films. They kind of feel a little bit like A24, in a sense. Like, A24 makes French films for America, by Americans. <laughs> Maybe uh, not but directly, but I understand what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. But yes, but because of so much of the, the things that it did knew, that became its influence. So that's why it was so significant for its time, because it was the pioneer in a lot of things. That's, the, that's what makes it significant, is that it was a pioneer for this new wave. Yeah, I don't think there's too much we can say on this topic that we haven't said before, but but this really was the start of an entire movement. And I, I definitely uh, recommend going out and learning more about the French New Wave in general, uh, looking up online and, and, and looking at more of the films that fall underneath that category if this has interest to you at all. Yes, and actually I'll go ahead and let you guys know there is a really good video essay on YouTube about the French New Wave. I watched a couple, but my favorite is the one that comes up right away uh, when you type in French New Wave, and that's by the Cinema Cartography. Is that how you pronounce that? Cartography? Cartography? Like map making? Yeah, yeah. The Cinema Cartography. That's a, that's a really good video. And then there's other videos, because like I said, the like we said, it's so expansive, the French New Wave. So there's so much to look into. It is a, it is a point of history. You know, like we discussed much in these episodes, film has its place in history, like a very prevalent place. And I'll try to link that video on our social media too when we release this episode, just so that you can have that link to go and watch it. And to follow us on social media. And follow us on social media. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get into our overall rating of this film. And I'm, I mean, I'm curious to see what you rank this, Bryant, because I don't know. It's just something I'm curious about. I wasn't entirely sure. I thought you would generally like this film because of the impact it had. But, you know, sometimes the impact it had and the historical context and all of that, 
doesn't always mean that we're going to personally enjoy it from our own personal opinions and feelings. So I, I was kind of curious to see where you fell with this one. I thought it would be mostly positive, but I, I'm still kind of not sure about your letter grade. Now you actually set me up perfect right there because I'm actually going to have to kind of give this two ratings. I mean, yeah, one is going to be the core rating, how I felt about it. But like you said, this is this movie has a huge impact. And like I said twice already, there's a lot to appreciate this film for its time, for what it had influenced and for what it did during that period. And in that sense, you know, just looking at this film as a technical piece in not just film history, but history, I would have to say this is a this is an A film. This is a solid A film. I mean, I wouldn't go A plus because I think some things were still kind of just there to be there, like him coming out of the car and lifting up the girl's skirt. That didn't really, I don't know what you were doing there. As watching it now, as far as my enjoyment with the film, I'll say it's a B. I would give it, I was enjoying the film, but I think a lot of what I liked about this film is just from it being experimental and from doing something new in that admiring sense. But looking at it just as a film and holding against all the other films out there in any any space and time, I'll give it up a, a solid B. Yeah, I'm going to go higher than you. I think that this second viewing definitely gave me more appreciation for it, uh, knowing Godard, being a fan of Godard. But also just, it is an accessible film, and I'm not sure what the original disconnect I had with it was, because before I, I didn't think I was going to rank this near as high um, as I am about to, because like I said, there are other Godard films that I've seen and I really do enjoy. Um, I'm not going to try to rank it against those right now because I would have to go back and rewatch some of the other ones. But I'm going to say that it's an A plus for me. Um, and that's both of his legacy and my overall enjoyment. And I think uh, that apartment scene where they're talking, that seduction scene, for me, that scene by itself, I think, would be S tier all the way. I, I absolutely adore that scene. I think it's so well crafted, well done. Um, so I'm going to give this film as a whole an A+. I respect that. Yeah, I, I can totally see why anyone would give this film an A+. And a B is not bad. B is still good. It's not. I'm not saying this is yeah. an average film by any means. This is a great film. And it's got great scenes. Like you said, that apartment scene is great. There's a lot of just a little bit of things to pull from here and there that bring this above an average film. The line to become immortal then die itself brings up a point. Yeah, and I don't think every scene is A-plus quality, especially at the beginning of this film before uh, Patricia kind of comes into the story. I don't think every scene is A-plus quality, but because that one apartment scene, which takes up just almost like feels like a third of a film. I don't know if it's fully that much, but it is such a large part of a film. But because I think so, so highly of that, you know, even to average it out, it's still an A, A+. Do you have any final comments? I would just like to take the opportunity to say that dialogue matters a lot and dialogue itself can be so engaging. And even if it's just minor action taking place, it's, I, I love it. It's something I really always appreciated in film. One of my favorite film scenes out there, you know, just naming one of my favorite dialogues out there, The Master by Paul Thomas Anderson. There's an interview scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix, two great actors 
and they have this great interview scene together. And then like Bojack Horseman is my favorite TV show. And there's an episode where he's just talking a full 23 minutes of this person just talking at a funeral. Doesn't cut to anything. I think it has one cut. That's all. So it's, you know, I got, I'm really thankful to the French new wave showing that because it definitely had an influence. You look at Tarantino and his great dialogue. That's where we got it from. Yeah, and it's definitely one of the harder things to write as well. It's it's very difficult to write dialogue that is natural and dialogue that is natural for the characters that you're writing. Because it's easy to, it's obviously it's going to be easier to write dialogue if you're writing for a character that's just like you. But being able to capture the perspective of someone else and, and where they're coming from and being able to capture their dialogue, that, that really is a talent. Very much so. So we are curious to see what you thought about this film. If you stuck along with us for this entire podcast, we do want to hear your opinions on what we've had to say. We also want to hear what your favorite French New Wave film is if you are a cinephile like ourselves and do have a favorite French New Wave or a favorite Godard film, please let us know. We would love to hear it. Or if there is a particular French New Wave film that we didn't talk about today that you think might be a good addition to our podcast, please let us know. And you can let us know on on our social media. So we're going to be at Op Silver Screen on Twitter and Instagram. On Facebook, we're at Operation Silver Screen, but on Twitter and Instagram, that is Op Silver Screen. You can also find me and Brian on our personal letterboxes. For me, that's going to be at Coffee Spoon Kate. That's Coffee Spoon C A I T. And for Brian, you can find him at Swank Seal. That's capital S, capital S. Make sure you contact us on that social media. Definitely want to hear from you guys. Uh, leave your reviews as well. We want all types of criticism. Let us know. Let us know what we can do better, what we should keep doing. I also want to give a shout out to Germany. Uh, Germany right now makes up our second highest listenership with, of course, America is our biggest, but Germany comes in at a strong 4%. So and you guys have actually been around since the beginning, and I would love to talk to some of the Germans out there. Germany is one of my favorite countries, has my favorite city in there ever. My number one favorite city is Berlin, been there twice. So just love to make contact all around the world, see what you guys see what you guys think. So Caitlin, for our next episode, I'm going to need you to really focus. All right, I'm going to need you to focus. I need you to keep your eyes on the objective, off of Val Kilmer and Tom Cruise, playing some very erotic volleyball, because we're going to be stepping into the danger zone. We have Top Gun. <laughs> yes, it's also anticipation of the new movie, Top Gun Maverick, which we'll also be doing an episode in for our legacy sequel, bonus objective. I'll um I'll do my best to stay focused for our, our next mission. I'm glad to hear it. Let's see. <laughs> Erotic volleyball. <laughs> it is. Have you not heard about the volleyball scene? No, not at all. Ooh, yeah. In for a treat, let me tell you. <laughs> y- yeah. Your gra- let your grandmother tell you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Alright, well, till the next mission, guys. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. See you.